Thank you, Dr. Anderson. Grateful to be led in prayer and do want to say a special hello to my friend Ron who's watching. What encouragement you are to all of us as we all have opportunity to encourage each other. We continue in our journey through the gospel according to Luke. We have uh, Dr. and Mrs. Poland back with us today. We also are back with Dr. Luke, the beloved physician. And as we've gone through our journey, we have seen the wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember the word revelation refers to the fact that the veil has been lifted, that something that otherwise would have remained obscured and hidden from us has been revealed for us in Scripture. And so Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us the Lord Jesus. And as we read the Word, we come to encounter Him and to see Him as He really is, because knowing Him means everything. You know, you can know certain people in the world and experience particular advantages from knowing those people. Perhaps it's someone in a position of influence, either political or social. And, uh, you know, like somebody used to say back home, if you can't be somebody, you ought to know somebody. But knowing Jesus is not like that. It's not simply knowing somebody to be able to experience an advantage here and there. Knowing Jesus literally means everything. So as we look together, let's consider him. Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 22, in an extraordinary account of an extraordinary event. Hear the word of God. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. So may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our understanding. May his name evermore be praised. Amen. Power. People are fascinated with it. They seem to want to do anything they can to obtain it and don't ever want to let go of it. But what power do we really have in the world, even if we... Think of our own commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, and all that is available, that is beck and call. We think about that person who carries around that nuclear football with the president wherever he goes. It has those codes in it that uh, contain the mechanism by which enough of an arsenal could be unleashed that would destroy the world, perhaps, several times over. We think of other manifestations of power. But then, on the other hand, we think about how helpless we are. Think about all the planning that we can put into any particular event, and yet one thunderstorm can come along and completely undo everything that we have tried to accomplish. 
We have all of the technology that we have available to us, but the Lord has a way of reminding us on a daily basis that we really don't have actual power. Most of what we presume to be power is more of an illusion than actual. And yet, there comes along a person who possesses real authority and real power. Not somebody who simply makes a good talk, as my grandmother used to say, but somebody who actually backs up what he says with what he is able to do. And nobody does that like the Lord Jesus. He speaks, he preaches, he teaches with authority because he has authority. He has all power. It isn't presumed and it's not an illusion. It is actual. And as Luke tells us this account, it's not couched within the trappings of some fictional story as once upon a time. No, on an actual day, a real day in history, a day that actually occurred when the sun rose and things were taking place, Jesus had been with the crowd and wanting to get away from the crowd, as we learn from the other gospel narratives, he asked the disciples to get into a boat with him. Now, there's nothing remarkable about that. But knowing what we do at this point, we might ask ourselves the question, why would he ask them to get into that boat to go across the sea, knowing that there was going to be this tremendous storm come up? I just want you to know that in spite of much of the preaching today, you and I need to understand that following Jesus doesn't mean getting out of trouble. Following Jesus means going through difficulties, not avoiding them. Now look, we live in a fallen world. Life is filled with storms. You're going to face them. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. And some of you are experiencing the clouds breaking over your heads at this very moment. You have more coming down on you than you anticipated, and it's more than you can handle on your own. You know what a storm is. These storms descended upon the Sea of Galilee or the Lake Gennesaret, as we also know it in Scripture, because it's about 700 feet below sea level. And some 30 miles to the north, there is Mount Hermon, which is about 9,200 feet in elevation above sea level. And that cold air rushing down off of that mountain, colliding with the warmer air that ascends from the Sea of Galilee, produces storms, some of which can be horrendous. And we know that these men who were with Jesus were fishermen. You know, this wasn't their first rodeo. This was not their first trip out on the water. They had seen storms arise. But there was something about this storm that was particularly fierce. And I would suggest to you that because of the wording that we have in the scripture here, when it says that Jesus rebuked them, that there is a certain satanic force behind them. Commentators agree on this for the most part. So I want you to know that Jesus asked the disciples to get into the boat and he led them into danger. Doesn't that go against much of what you hear today? We're led to believe in much preaching that if you only trust in Jesus, if you only have a relationship with him, while well, life would be a virtual bed of roses. I've always wondered about that. I've never really wanted to sleep on roses. Have you? <laughs> Those things have thorns in them. What kind of bed would that really be? You know, but you're going to have it easy. Have enough faith. You'll have all the money. You'll have all the wealth and the health that you can possibly imagine. Don't talk to me about Jesus leading me into danger. But the problem is, being in a fallen world, you're going to go through danger. 
just a question of whether you go through it with Jesus or without Him. When we trust in Christ, we can expect winds and waves of opposition. There really does seem to be an evil component to this. A satanic influence, an attempt perhaps to end the ministry of Christ here to prevent that ultimate act of redemption that would occur on the cross. That seems probable. So the opposition to him was real. And remember, the student is not above the teacher. As followers of the Lord Jesus, we also can expect that fierce opposition. Now, in case you think I'm discouraging you from following Jesus, I would simply ask you this question. Who would you really rather have as an enemy? Satan, after all, is a formidable enemy. You say, well, following Jesus is going to mean all that. I don't know about that. Well, would you rather have Satan as your enemy or God? Whose wrath would you rather face? And so we can expect opposition. The question is not whether we're going to face the storms, but as I've already said, who's in the boat with you? As we read this, we see that it's couched in historical terms. They were in the boat on an actual day in an actual place on this Sea of Galilee. Let's cross over to the other side. They followed his instructions. They set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Already I've stated to you that he has all power and authority. That's what scripture tells us. And yet he falls asleep. What we see here is that Jesus, being both man and God, he is the man who fell asleep and God who commands the winds and the waves. This is one of the great mysteries of all time. How that deity and humanity can dwell together in the same person. Two natures in one person. Those natures aren't confused. He didn't cease to be God when he became a man. In being a man, he gave up all of the trappings, all of the insignia of deity, and yet he retains that power and authority. Both humanity and divinity dwelling in the same person. Now you may think Contemplating Einstein's theory of relativity could keep you busy for a while, but I would suggest to you all you have to do is think about how can those two natures dwell together within the same person. Scripture doesn't try to explain it to us. It simply proclaims it to us. But what we know is that as a human being, the Lord Jesus experienced all that we experienced in this life in terms of temptation, in terms of the threat of illness and death and pain and suffering... And, of course, he did it without sinning. He never committed sin. But all those physical limitations, yet he remains fully God. It is a curiosity to us to read how that the Son of God could fall asleep in a boat. But it tells us, by succumbing to fatigue, he demonstrates that his ultimate suffering was real. He was actually tired. He was exhausted after ministering in the way that he had. And sleep was the way of relief for him. He needed that, humanly speaking. And when he dies on the cross, there's no illusion of suffering. He's not there acting the part. He actually endures real pain, physically and otherwise, as a real human being, but also as God. 
But in that we can find comfort because we know the one who endured such is the one who intercedes for us right now. We don't ever have to question whether Jesus can understand the difficulty that we're having, the pain that we're enduring. He knows. He understands. Both man and God. The Anthropos, the God-man. One of the great mysteries of time and eternity. And yet here he is. Interesting how that Mark, which is the shortest of the gospel narratives, provides us most of the information we have about this account. A couple of things that he throws in. First of all, there were other boats with them out on the lake. And the other thing that Mark throws in is that he says there was a cushion in the boat. What's that got to do with anything? I like what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller quotes others in saying that, you know, all of that goes against the, the common narrative of our era, which says these, these accounts were fictional. They were, you know, they were made up in order to try to get people to follow along in a certain way of thinking. But when you make up a story, you don't throw in incidental things like that that have nothing to do with the story. The cushion never comes back up. The other boats don't ever come back up. What it does is it gives it the hallmark of being an actual historical account because that's what happens in history. People will throw in incidental details that don't have anything to do with the story. It's just what they remember being there. Well, it actually happened. Jesus is actually asleep, and the disciples are actually terrified. This storm is raging down on them. The the water is coming in. It doesn't say the water was coming in the boat. It says it was filling them. Do you see that? That, That's how frightening this was. It was as if they were all being filled up with water, not just the vessel that they were riding in. And so they're actually terrified. Where's the Lord? Where's the Master? Wake Him up! And Jesus rebukes them. Where is your faith? How is it that God the Father would have brought him forth into the world to let him perish out on a lake? How is it that everything would come to an end in that moment? Where is your faith? And of course Jesus speaks and all is stilled. Notice there's no incantation here. Every other story that we read about where things like this happen, there's there's some sort of abracadabra in the name of this or that. Jesus doesn't rely on the authority of another. You see, the authority that was necessary to quiet that storm was residing within him. He didn't need to do it in anybody's name. He is the one through whom the whole world had been created. So all he had to do was say, be quiet. And that storm couldn't do anything other than stop. He has authority. So what you and I need to know is that even though our faith may be lacking, the power of the Savior is not diminished. Because ultimately, it's not the amount of our faith that saves us. As we've said repeatedly, what saves us is the object in which our faith rests. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed. Or you might have faith the size of an avocado seed. I'll take liberties and say something like that. It's not the amount of faith, it's it's the one you're trusting in that matters. And what we see is that the Lord Jesus has all power and authority. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he is able. There's a whole sermon right there. He is able. 
to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, this is why we don't need another talk on self-help, on motivating you and convincing you what a wonderful person you are and what you're able to achieve on your own. That's only going to get you so far. You know, people have said guilt is a poor motivator. I've actually found guilt to be a really good motivator for about five minutes. You know, you can get the money out of the billfold. You can get that immediate response you're looking for. You can give a motivational talk and perhaps you can get 15 minutes out of somebody. But at some point, we all come to the end of ourselves. Our resources run out. Our abilities are limited. We can only do so much. That's why we must place our faith in something outside of ourselves, someone outside of ourselves. And so as the storm clouds are breaking over your head, you've got to ask yourself the question, who am I trusting in? What am I trusting in? Because it's a day-to-day exercise. Every day we have to remind ourselves that we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you here today? Yesterday, Kathy and I were at an event in Naples for church leaders, and we were talking to a gentleman there who had an interesting last name. You know, that's the pot calling the kettle black, right? Womack, Womack. I'm always having to spell my name, W-O-M-A-C-K. So I, you know, noticed people's last names, and he had an interesting one, and we asked him about it, and he said, yes. He said, my grandparents came over from Belgium. And so we were telling about a mission trip we had taken there some years ago, and how that we know missionaries there. and We were talking, and he mentioned about how Belgium, sadly, is, uh, has very few Christians living there. It's a very um, destitute part of the world spiritually. And he was telling us how he had a conversation on a visit there one time, and somebody was telling him, said, well, you know, generations back, our grandparents, great-grandparents, they went to church, but even then... By their time, they were just going in case it happened to be true. I wonder if some of us aren't along that line of progression. We're coming just in case there might be something to it. Not having been convinced of the real identity and authenticity and power and authority of the Lord Jesus. And to ask ourselves the question, am I all in? Yes, our faith may be lacking, but no, there is nothing diminished about the power and authority of the Lord Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost. Man, I like that. That's uh, that's what gives me hope when I wake up in the mornings. What if it said he's able to save you a little bit? What if it said he's able to save you most of the way? No, to the uttermost. What if he spoke and the storm sort of calmed down? The wind subsided a bit. The ship wasn't quite as inundated with water as it was a few minutes ago. That's not the way it worked. When he spoke, everything was quiet. And note that this really is a double miracle. Because, you know, you could even grow up in the hills like I did and know next to nothing about sailing and things like that, but I have enough sense to know that even when the storm stops, the water keeps churning for a long while. We saw it out here on the coast when Sarah was visiting with us. 
The storm had been gone for a while, but those waves were, I mean, it was the highest I've seen the waves coming in from the Gulf as they were crashing on the shore that particular day. No storm, but the water was still very tumultuous. When Jesus spoke, it's not just that the storm died, but the water also became placid and perfectly still. Again, it didn't have any choice in the matter. The Creator had spoken. It's extraordinary when we see how this works. And it reminds us, I think, as Tim Keller has said also, it reminds us of another storm in Scripture, one that is introduced and described in almost identical terms in the book of Jonah. In Jonah, you also have a man who is asleep in the boat, and you have sailors who are terrified in the midst of a storm. They also wake the man up who is asleep and cry out, We're about to die. This is it. They don't know where to turn. In both instances, there's divine intervention. The Lord intervenes and calms the storm in extraordinary fashion. And in both cases, the men who are in the boat are more afraid after the storm has passed than they were during it. Isn't that interesting? Jonah had said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Now, of course, Jesus was not cast into the storm, into the sea. He spoke and the waters were quieted. But there is a parallel there that we cannot ignore because he says in Matthew, a greater than Jonah is here, speaking of himself. And as Tim Keller says, there's a very real sense in which the Lord Jesus is cast into the sea. It doesn't happen on this day. But on that day, when he laid down his life for us, he was cast into that chaos of tumult, that awfulness and wickedness of sin when he endured the wrath of God, taking it upon himself so that the sea for us is made calm. We think our greatest need is for Jesus to calm the storm, the sea. What we really need is him. It comes back to that question again. It's not whether you're going to face the storm. Who do you have in the boat with you? Who are you trusting in? And it's not merely a matter of salvation. I want to impress upon you the need to trust in Christ in order to be saved for eternity. But after all, we need the power of Christ to live day in and day out. How do we endure it when we get more news? Another loved one struck down with an illness for which there is no cure, medically speaking. How do we endure another wayward child or grandchild? How do we, how do we endure the, the world's circumstances? Just watching the news is stressful. What is going to happen? Another shooting, more riots, more stealing, violence. Is it going to come near us? You see, a relationship with the Lord Jesus is not just some great big pie in the sky, by and by. It's a present reality in the here and now. The one who is able to calm the storm is the one who saves us from it. And we need him. We want the benefits of his power And yet, 
We don't want to give up our own. We want to cling to that illusion that we have power, that we somehow are in control. Let me know how that works out for you. I was talking to a man in a hospital years ago. He had lived a a life where he had been in charge of most things. His family, his business, social club he was a part of, his church. He was pretty much in charge. And then came that diagnosis of cancer. And the doctor had given him the news that there was nothing medically that they could do for him. It was simply a matter of time. And I can still yet see the tears just running down his face. He said, all my life I've been in control. And I can't tell you all the words he said, but he said, now I can't do a thing. That's the short version of it. I said, you know, in truth, you never have been in control, have you? You just thought you were. And we talked. We talked scripture. We talked about the Lord Jesus. And his family that was so worried and concerned about him. At least had comfort in knowing that in his final days on earth. He surrendered his life to Jesus. And recognized the one who truly has authority. You may think. You're in control. Jesus promises to be with us. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what he told the disciples when he gave them the Great Commission. He gave them an impossible task to fulfill. How do you go out and make disciples of all the nations? I am with you. How do I face the uncertainty and the unknown? How do I deal with the difficulties in my life? Because I know he is with me. He is my rock. He is my shield. He is my fortress. And he's not only the one that can calm the sea, but he speaks to me in that still, small voice and gives me that peace that passes understanding. This one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, they thought they were afraid during the storm, but afterwards, that's when the real fear settled in. They marveled saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Who is this? We know the answer to that question, don't we? Dr. Poland answered that for us a couple of weeks ago. We know who this is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ever-living one. This is the light of the world. This is the fountain of living water. This is the great I Am who said, getting himself into deeper trouble with the religious leaders even before Abraham was I am, this is him he is the one we need for salvation and for life for comfort when we can't change our circumstances when we can't change the hearts of our unbelieving family and loved ones when we can't undo the diagnosis that the doctor has pronounced when we're not able to deal humanly speaking with our circumstances we know the one who has all power And thus, we can know the peace that he provides as he speaks and as he guards and keeps our hearts in Christ Jesus. So it's something to consider as we look at this one, this one who has all authority. He's the man in charge. 
saw uh, somebody upset recently because uh, a flight was canceled. And I overheard one lady saying to an attendant who was working at the desk, I want to speak to the person in charge. (laughs) And my Calvinist background wanted me to say, good luck with that. (laughs) Folks, you're not going to find the person in charge sitting behind a desk in an office. In fact, you don't have to pick up the phone. You don't have to get in your car and drive anywhere or even walk across the hallway. He's right here. And to any who will receive him, he gives you the right to be called the children of God. And his power, his power that is even sufficient to deliver you from death, Hey, you know, you compare that to a storm, what's a storm? But the one who has authority over death is the one who promises to deliver you. So whatever the storm is that's crashing over you right now, remember who's in charge. And remember he's available. And remember the privilege that we have in prayer to have fellowship and communion with him. And you never have to wake him up. For he, having ascended to his Father's throne, in that position of honor at the right-hand side, is interceding for you, available 24-7, so that we can cast our cares on him and know that he's working together all things for our good and for his Father's glory. We never have to doubt. And he's always with us. Who's in the boat with you? The waves are getting higher. The water is coming in. It's only a matter of time unless something changes. And so I plead with you, surrender and call on him. He saves to the uttermost. Because you know what? He alone has the power to do that. There aren't enough resources in the federal government with all of its debt and assets to get you out of the predicament that you're facing. Not all of them marshaled together and not the United Nations. And not all that we could consider or conceive of, humanly speaking. But this one man can do what everyone else has failed to do. He saves. Yes, he does. Let's pray. Father in heaven. You are most blessed and glorious, and we thank you that we have such a great Savior who has accomplished far more than our minds can comprehend. And we thank you, O Father, that in this short account of that event that took place so long ago, that we can find encouragement and hope in our own circumstances. Father, I know that in this congregation and that among those who are watching online, There's a lot of hurt, and the storm is ferocious, and some feel as if they're about to be completely swamped and at the bottom of the sea. Oh, Father, open our eyes to see our great Savior, 
to know that he has descended into the depths that we might ascend with him to the heights of glory. Grant us grace that our faith may be firmly fixed in the one who is able and the one who saves to the uttermost. Thank you for your beloved son as we praise you and ask you to grant to us that we may know him in order to make him known. Amen. As we conclude, let's sing, Be Still, My Soul. Sometimes you've got to talk to yourself, right? The psalmist does it. Oh, my soul. So let's sing as we look to the Lord together. Stand with me.